Good. Uh, well, my name is Pastor Steven Sigamini. Um, I know I was trying to coach Sharon a little bit on my last name. Don't worry. Uh, my last name is difficult for everybody. Um, Sigamini. My dad tried to, um, as a kid growing up, tried to break it down to see I got money. Kind of like, kind of like to try to make it a little bit easier, even though that statement is not true about me. But it's just to help, help make the last name pronunciation easier. And if you aren't familiar with where Avon Park is, um, you're not alone either. Um, Avon Park is pretty much in the middle of Florida. So we took uh, like 64 and then 31 and different bunch of different back roads to get here. Um, and they ended up on the 75. Um, but I've been to Naples before. Love this area. Super beautiful. Um, have a few people with me. Have my wife, Valerie. If you want to wait, raise your hand. Uh, there's Valerie and then some of our friends from our church, Key and Sinai. Um, thank you for, for being here. Um, thank you just for the warm welcome. You guys have a beautiful church. I'm just super excited to be here. Let's have a word of prayer before we dive into the word of God. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity um, to worship together. Um, God, over the, last, um, over the last year, Lord, we've learned um, how much we've missed that, how much we need that community, how much we need the opportunity to be together. God, we ask now as we delve into the word that you'll walk with us, give us new understanding, open our eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you have woken up after a really weird dream, like a really bad, or maybe like a really bad dream. And dreams are somewhat uh, controversial, right? Because somebody can, can be in a, different, a particular mood based on what they dreamt about, right? Based on how, like, they, they could have dreamt about something negative and they wake up angry, they wake up tense, they wake up upset, right? So dreams, and, and something that's happened in, in our, since I've been married is sometimes my wife will wake up and she'll have had some dream where I did something bad. Right, and she'll wake up and be kind of tense, like kind of, kind of upset at me. And I'm like, whoa, like, I just slept. Like, what's the, like, what's the big deal? You, some of you can relate to that. Um, and so, and a lot of people, I was really fascinated by dreams because I am somebody who is a really, really hard sleeper. I was sharing with my church last week that I pretty much can sleep through anything. Um, we had been trying to get through the Marvel series, if you guys are familiar with Marvel. Um, I've been trying to get through that series, but anytime the movie goes on after like 8.30, it's a challenge for me to stay awake. And like, I am notorious for falling asleep. And so I've had a lot of dreams over the, over the course of time. And I've been fascinated by what dreams are. And I don't know if you um, have heard about this new study that just came out, or somebody has a new hypothesis when it comes to dreams. New article, go check it out. I'm gonna read you a little bit of what it said. In the article, it says that dreams can be bafflingly bizarre, which we can all relate to. But according to a new theory of why we dream, that might be the whole point. By injecting some random weirdness into our humdrum existence, dreams leave us better equipped to cope with the unexpected. So the new theory is kind of explained here by, um, and it's based on artificial intelligence, AI. Um, it's made by a guy named Eric Howell. Hopefully I pronounced his last name correctly. A research assistant professor of neuroscience at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And his theory is the overfitted brain hypothesis. And it reads as it's saying this, a common problem when it comes to training artificial intelligence or AI is that it becomes too familiar with the data that it's being trained on because it assumes that this training set is a perfect representation of anything that it might encounter. So scientists try to fix this by overfitting, by introducing some chaos into the data in the form of noisy or corrupted inputs, right? So just to, to, to zoom out for a second, it's saying that AI is, starts to become expecting, right, that, oh, this is the way life goes, and so they try to mix something in to make it a little bit more difficult, right, to kind of keep it on its toes, per se. 
Howell suggests that our brains do something similar when we dream. Particularly as we get older, our days become statistically pretty similar to one another, sort of monotonous, meaning our training set is very limited, but we still need to be able to generalize our abilities to new and unexpected circumstances, whether it's our physical movements or reactions or our mental processes and understanding. We can't inject random noise into our brains while we're awake because we need to concentrate on the tasks at hand and perform them as accurately as possible, but sleep is an entirely different matter, the article says. By creating a weirded version of the world, dreams may make our understanding of it less simplistic and more well-rounded. And he finishes up by saying, it is the very strangeness of our dreams in their divergence from waking experience that gives them their biological function. So interesting, interesting sort of theory when it comes to dreams, when it comes to how our mind and our body is working. Um, go, go read more about it. I'm kind of checking it out a little bit. But all of these things sort of bring me to this thought of dreams, and it leads me to Daniel chapter 2, which is a very, maybe for if you're Adventist, this might be the most famous dream in the Bible. Where, and I'm not sure what Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the king, I'm not sure what his neurological process was happening for him when he, when he dreamt. But what we do know is that he woke up very, very distraught. Right? Maybe his life had been going fairly normal, and now this was his body um, sending a, a particular message, and boy, did it shift his thinking. He woke up very much concerned. So if you open with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you or your, or your phones, we're actually going to be journeying through Daniel 2, so it might feel a little bit like a Bible study, um, but Daniel, I hope we can pull out some, some really cool nuggets from Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, Daniel is after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 2. If I can get there. All right, there we go. All right. And just to sort of, before we begin Daniel 2, I want to set a little bit of context, right, and kind of replay the story for if you may not be familiar with what happened, what's happening in the book of Daniel up until this point. In Daniel chapter 1, we meet the character by the name of Daniel, right? And Daniel and, and his three friends at this time were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were kidnapped, essentially kidnapped and taken captive to Babylon. And they, had, they were taken and their identities were stripped away. They were given new Babylonian names. And Daniel, whose name originally meant God is my judge, now became Belteshazzar, which means Beltis or Baal or Baal will protect. Some translations also say the one who lays up treasures in secret. So his name now shifted away from who, uh, who God being his judge, to now it shifted over to this other God, Baal, being the one who will protect. His friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had their names changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their original names meant God is gracious, who is like God, and God has helped. But now their names changed to commanded of the moon God, who is what Aku is, which was another god, and servant of Nabu, all of whom were gods that were not um, the true god in which they worshipped. So these names didn't just signify the fact that, that, that they had to write down a different name on a piece of paper. It actually signified oppression. It signified their recent displacement. It signified the reality of their situation. See, their names were changed intentionally to erase their cultural identity. It, it wiped away their culture. It, it took, a, took away what they knew growing up and now changed it into something totally different. It was an attempt to minimize their stories, 
and an attempt to minimize who they were. See, we see in Daniel chapter 1 also, if you, if you look at Daniel 1, they were then forcibly given food to eat at the king's table. They were brought before a, 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 the king's spread, and they were told to eat. But the food that was in front of them was unclean in their culture. It was unclean to them, and they decided they weren't going to do it. In a step of resistance towards the new culture, they decided that they would sort of defy the orders that had been given to them. And they actually requested a 10-day health competition, per se. They asked for vegetables and water instead of the meats and the drinks that were there before them. And it wasn't just to, because they had food allergies. It wasn't just because, you know, they, they wanted to, to go into, you know, ketosis, right? They weren't on a keto diet. Like, there was something else. There was a different sort of resistance that they were working towards. And Daniel and his friends, this dietary situation was about allegiance. It was about their allegiance, right? It was, it was maybe a, a moment to kind of show a little bit of resistance towards what had been happening to them, and they felt like this was something that would help them push back on it. It was about allegiance. See, Daniel and his friends had experienced up until this point a tremendous level of trauma, a tremendous level of mental strain. They were disenfranchised from their community, yet in in Daniel chapter 1, it ends with this being said of Daniel and his friends. Daniel 1 verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So despite everything that happened, right, everything that they had been through in all of Daniel chapter 1, they land and, and the chapter ends with it being said that they were ten times smarter than the psychics, than everybody else in that kingdom, all the wise men, these people that eat fruits and vegetables and drink water and worship a different god than the kingdom says. See, these four boys were essentially brought into slavery and, and, and now were seen as greater than everybody else. It, cause, it causes me to think that there must have been something magnificent at work in their life. Something magnificent was taking place. Yet, in Daniel chapter 2, we land at the dream. The king Nebuchadnezzar wakes up and he is frustrated. Let's go to uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And we mentioned earlier that you can probably relate to that feeling of waking up and feeling anxiety over a dream, feeling anxiety over not knowing what you just experienced while you were sleeping. And he calls the astrologers and the sorcerers in front of him and says, guys, I need you to tell me what I dreamt because I can't remember. And put yourself in the sorcerer's shoes and astrologers, right? Maybe you might have no sympathy for them, like, isn't that their job to know the future? But in this situation, he doesn't just say interpret the dream. He says, tell me what I dreamt. And all of a sudden, they are lost for words. And we see in verse 5 and 6, the king replied to the Chaldeans, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream 
and its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his frustration, does something that maybe, hopefully, you and I don't have the power to do. He adds, in his desperation, a barbaric caveat to the story, to what he's feeling. And, and in his response of anger and frustration, he says, you will be torn limb from limb if you don't reveal this to me. You will be destroyed. Your houses will be torn down if they can't interpret it. But he says, if you do, I'm going to give you great things. Right? So now if you're an astrologer or somebody who, who you're like, man, it's all or nothing. Literally, it's all like things are going to turn out really great or I'm going to be dead. My family is going to be separated from me because I'm, I'm going to die. In fact, maybe my family might die as well. And it creates a question in my mind. Why couldn't Nebuchadnezzar just let it go? Why couldn't he have just been like, well, it was a weird dream. It's frustrating. Okay, they can't figure it out. Let's go on with our lives. I'm the king after all. Like, what, what was it for him that he could? Why, why, was, why was there a need for so much intensity? Why was there a need to put lives at risk over a simple dream? I believe it's probably because Nebuchadnezzar knew it wasn't just a simple dream. I think Nebuchadnezzar knew that there was something meaningful, something powerful within that dream that resulted in him not being able to sleep or to think properly or to do his job. Exactly. It was impossible for him to put it out of his mind. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we see in verse 12 where he finally lands here in verse 12 by saying, because of this, the king became very indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and then they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So his threat now said, all right, you know what? No one's figuring it out. So everybody who declares themselves a wise man is in the line of fire. And it placed Daniel and his friends in that line of fire. And verse 14, I want to check out what, what Daniel says because I find it very interesting what Daniel says. Daniel replied with discretion and discernment, which is really big because I think maybe Daniel has already dealt with so much hostility and, and conflict and trauma. And he responds by saying in verse 15, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent, right? He's kind of asking the question, we're wondering, what is the reason? What's the big, what's the big deal? Verse 16, he says, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him some time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then verse 17 says, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from God from the God of heaven, concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, what is the motivation for Daniel in this moment? What's the motivation? Anybody have any thoughts? Why, why is Daniel, Daniel goes before the king, right? And he says, okay, hold off on killing me. I think, I, I think I'm going to figure out this dream. I think I might have it. And he, set, and he comes back and tells his friends, all right, guys, we need to pray. We need, to, we need to pray hard. We need to pray all night for God to reveal this to us so that we don't die with everybody else. So in this moment, I actually would say that Daniel's motives might not be perfect. Daniel's motives aren't to save everybody. Daniel, he's not concerned with, with everyone else in his kingdom. Who he's concerned about is himself and the people that he's close with, right? And, and those of us, if we take into account their situation, um, everything they've been through, or even not even, even if that hadn't happened, we can kind of understand that, like, Okay, he wants to be safe with those that he cares about. We can all relate to that. That's something that makes sense to us. We can all kind of get behind that. We wouldn't blame Daniel for, for feeling that way. 
But it doesn't, it's not, there's something that kind of puzzled me about it. Because I feel like maybe God would be like, no, like, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to this. Maybe, you know, in this dream there's something more powerful. But Daniel approaches this by simply being fickle, maybe a little bit selfish, and saying, God, please help us understand this so we don't die also. Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, absolutely. See, Daniel and his friends, though in this moment, while, while being on the brink, while being, in, in, being concerned, they, they have a deep, deep connection to God. And so they say, okay, well, this is happening, and while their motives may not be perfect, they go to the same place that they went to when they were in danger. When they knew Babylon was going to take them away, they began praying. When they knew that that they couldn't eat the king's food, they began praying. So in this situation, as they're about to die, they say, all right, let's turn to that place, to that secret place that we always turn to. And, and I believe for us, in situations when we are concerned, in situations where, where we feel worried, we must come to that secret place. And what's beautiful about this, this moment with Daniel is, I don't believe that Daniel showed up to that moment with a beautifully scripted prayer. I don't believe he shows up spending time trying to flatter God and thanking him for everything that had happened. In fact, Daniel could lay out a lot of things that had been going wrong. But he shows up to that moment, and, and he doesn't try to impress God with his amazing faith. Instead, all he does in that moment is, I believe, offer up a raw prayer, asking for them not to be killed and for God to reveal the vision to them. That's, that's what he says, and maybe that prayer was in desperation. And maybe that prayer was just, God, help us. God, I just made a promise that I'm not sure I can keep without you. But I need your help. See, at this moment, Daniel also and his friends had, had so many reasons to have given up their faith. Right? Everything that they had been through. So many of us over the, over the course of the pandemic have maybe questioned things about our, our relationship with God. Maybe we've, maybe we've lost our job or, or, we've, or we've had less hours or we've lost a family member. And we have so many reasons we feel to kind of give up faith. To give up walking with God. And Daniel and his friends had the reason to do that. They lost their families. They lost their identities. Their life plans had been dashed. These were young adults. They, they probably had big plans for their lives. They were now there in Babylon against their will, essentially slaves. And now their reward for excelling and being committed to God was being scheduled to lose their life. But they decided to cry out to the Lord, like many of us do in our dark moments, in our painful moments, in our fearful moments. They enter back into that secret place. And I believe God listens. God listens to us in, in that moment. And God listened to Daniel and his friends. In the Bible, we read the story of Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he weeps. He weeps because he feels the pain. He, he understands the trauma of the human condition. He understands the trauma of what happens in life. We, we read throughout the Bible where Jesus would, would be walking by and someone cries out to him, and the Bible says that Jesus was moved with compassion to go help them. See, we, the Bible describes a God who is compassionate, who resonates with our experience, and I believe here he hears the cries of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He hears their rawness, their trauma, their fear, and I believe God finds a place inside their pain. And I believe God finds a place inside of our pain. Comes alongside of us, walks with us through our fears, through our worries. See, in our, in our 
darkest and scariest moments, the resilience that we might try to have, the discernment that we might try to have, can only come from one source, and that source exists outside of ourselves. It's found solely in God, found solely in Jesus Christ. It's found in the place of a God who is with us and desires to commune with us. It's found in the creator who inclines his ear towards us. In our moments of uncertainty, the place we must turn is this place with God, the place that Daniel and his friends came to, because in that place, that's where power resides. That's where transformation resides. That's where revealing resides. And in verse 19, it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. All right, so at this moment, they, their, their prayer is answered, right? Their, their raw prayer is answered, and now they are celebrating it. And Daniel says in verse 20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs, who removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. See right here, Daniel write, writes this and, and declares this to God, celebrating the fact that God has revealed to him the answer, revealed to him what he's looking for, and he sings his praises, very similar to what you and I do when God answers a prayer. When, when we feel like God is moving in our lives, we celebrate it. We, 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 we say, thank you, God. Look, God, you're, you're a God of blessings. We're really quick to say amazing happy things towards God when things are going right, when God answers our prayer the way we want it to be. He's grateful for it. But see, as the, as the euphoria wears off for Daniel, I want to hone in on verse 24. This might be arguably the text here that I never really thought much of, but I think it speaks to us as, as our responsibility and our response as Christians, right? So really quickly, just to, before I read 24. Recapping everything that's happened, right? Daniel, they, they say this prayer. God reveals it to them, which is, the, which is what God can do. Amen, right? God, God listens to us, and God can, can, can move in our lives. But in verse 24, check out what Daniel says. Therefore, Daniel goes to Arioch, the same guy that he goes to, to request to not be killed, right? He goes before the king. Now he comes to Arioch, who works for the king. To and this guy was the one who was to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him this. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. See, in this verse, I believe there's a shift in Daniel's mind. A very key, a very important shift for us as Christians, for us who desire to follow Christ. See, up until this time, the prayer in Daniel's life had been purely for himself and those like him, right? We, we established that. And they, they were concerned about their own well-being. They were concerned about God's relationship with them and how that was going to work out. But here, after he receives the vision in verse 24, now he realizes that this power isn't just for himself and those like him, but now he's using it to alleviate the pain of others, specifically the Babylonians, who had inflicted pain on his life, now he says, man, what, what God revealed to me in this dream isn't just for me. It's for somebody else also. And so he says, take me to the king, but don't kill the Babylonians. 
don't kill the Babylonians. And just to recap, what had Babylon done for Daniel? What had Babylon done to deserve Daniel's consideration in this moment? I would argue close to nothing, right? They were the ones oppressing him. They were the ones who hated him, the ones who stripped him of his identity. They were essentially his enemies. And as far as society was concerned, Daniel and his friends had nothing in common with the Babylonians. In fact, they were fundamentally at odds with each other. They worshipped different gods. They had different forms of government. Everything was different about the two of them. But I believe the Spirit of God moves Daniel from looking and focusing on himself and those like him to see God's greater picture, to see God's bigger picture. And he instead shows solidarity. He shows concern for Babylonians, for their families, for the ones that might be lost in this situation, caught in the crossfire. See, he asks for mercy for the families who might be separated like his own families. He asks for, for, for mercy on the ones whose homes would be destroyed like his own family's homes was probably destroyed. See, he uses what God has given him, the strength that God has given him now to build a bridge of connection with people who are different than him, with people who, who, who believe very different than him. He, he builds a bridge of connection, utilizing the power that God has, has given him. See, in this moment, God revealed to him that the message and revelation that was revealed to him wasn't just to save himself, but it was to save humanity. It was to save those who were like him and those who weren't. See, the, when, we, when we read this story, uh, especially if you come from the Adventist background, we sort of hone in on the image, right? The image, the head of gold, the, the uh, chest and arms of silver, right? We, we hone in on that and we talk about what each one represents. And those are key elements, right? And we kind of use that to prove um, the Bible being true, which is, which is all truth. But Daniel sees something bigger, and I want to hone in on something different that I believe is the essence of what Daniel, what Daniel is experiencing here. So let's go to verse 31. Verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. And here he is before Nebuchadnezzar, and he now does, first of all, what no one else could do up until this point. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue that we have seen probably numerous times. That statue which was large and of an extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from all the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the earth. And as Daniel says that, I believe Nebuchadnezzar is like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's, what, that's what I dreamt. That's what I dreamt. And in verse 38, Daniel then transitions over to the important part, the interpretation, which, as we know, later on, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't too fond of after the infatuation wore off. But we'll read here what, what Daniel describes. He says, you, O king, are the king of kings, verse 37, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar really liked hearing that. Verse 38, and wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the fields or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands and has caused you to rule over them all. You, my friend, are the head of gold. Verse 39, and after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you and then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And so 
as he's laying this out to him, he's revealing to him that there will be kingdoms. And we know that Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, here in verse 41, it says, you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, and signifying that it's a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron and as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And basically coming to the point where he says they will not be able to mix to each other in the same way that iron and clay do not mix. See, what, what Daniel is explaining to him is there would be throughout Earth's history generations of division, generations of racism, generations of genocide, generations of war. And it continues from Babylon all the way to divided Rome into our world today. He describes that to him. All of us can turn on the news and we can see this prophecy, this dream played out in front of our eyes. We don't, or, or for some of us, we can just step outside and see the realities of it. The realities of division, the realities of separation. But in verse 44, Daniel, Daniel reads and says before the king, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will in, in itself endure forever. See, Daniel tells the king that there will be a kingdom set up by God that will prevail. A kingdom that cannot be overtaken. A kingdom that cannot be broken. A kingdom that is built on very, very different principles than we build earthly kingdoms on. A kingdom that is not of this world. The kingdom that Jesus would walk around society saying, my kingdom is not of this world. I come from a different place. I I'm, I'm focused on other principles. And it's ruled by a God who is greater than any other God. A God of compassion. A God of inclusivity. A God of freedom. A kingdom built on restoration. See, as Daniel sees this vision and explains it to Nebuchadnezzar, he realizes that this prophecy and message is not just for one group of people, but it extends to everybody. That's the essence of this, this image, this rock. See, Daniel realizes that it's not just for those who go to church. It's not just for those who go to church on Sabbath or, or Sunday. It's not just for those who, who eat super healthy. It's not just for those who are conservative or progressive. It's not just for those who call themselves Christians. He realizes that the prophecy includes Babylon also. Babylon, who is always typically associated with, with things being not of God, God extends a hand in his prophecy and in his heart to Babylon. And Daniel begins to catch that reality, that it includes people who disagree with him. It includes people who have different opinions in him. It includes people of a different skin color than him. It includes different cultures, different genders. It includes people he shares nothing in common with. Daniel, in receiving the vision, sees deeply into the heart of God. He sees, I believe, the gospel story. A God who's focused on the restoration of humanity. He sees a God who is redefining margins. A God who laid down his life for us. A God who, who as he's, as he's ta being taken to the cross, the veil of separation between humanity and divinity is torn in half. He begins to see that God where, where, where walls are, are erased. And he offers us a God who offers us a new way. A God who calls us to a better way in our human relationships. A God who calls us to a better way in our lives. So as I close, I want to end with kind of summarizing some things in Daniel chapter 2. First one, we must daily work to cultivate our relationship with God. In good times, bad times. Because that place that we turn to in, in high moments and that place that we turn to in low moments must remain 
consistent. Because when we come to that place and we drink from that well of God, that well of truth, that, that, that wellspring that tells us who we truly are, it is there that we find supernatural strength that can guide us through life's hardships. Amen. And the second thing is that that strength that we receive from God, that favor that we receive from God is not just to build ourselves up. It's not just to make us feel good about ourselves and for us to walk in here and feel like we are above other people. But rather, it, we are to use that and extend uh, our hands to those who are around us, those we have nothing in common with, those that we disagree with, those that, those that bother us, that we are to extend the hand of empathy, the hand of solidarity, even when it is undeserved. It's the same way that we have received it from God, an undeserved gift, undeserved salvation. We are called to extend a lifeline to those around us because we have received the ultimate lifeline of salvation, of hope, and the promise of a kingdom that is greater than the world in which we're in, greater than anything we've imagined, a kingdom that is not of this world. So it's my prayer, Naples, that we would take up that mantle, that we would begin to be stewards of the message that we've received the transformation that we've received, and now turn it around and gift it to those around us. Because there's a kingdom that is being prepared for us. And I'm not sure what accepting this into your life might look like. I'm not sure what, what that means. And that's probably something that you might have to spend some time reflecting on. What are areas that, that God is trying to call me back into? How do, I, how do I reframe my relationship with God? How do I get back into that secret place? How do I readjust my schedule? And the other side of it is, who is God calling me to extend a hand to? Who am I reluctant to send a hand to? Who do I need that supernatural strength to guide me and to do things that I just don't have the power to do on my own? The kingdom that is found in Daniel chapter 2 is a kingdom filled with every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, every tongue, standing before the lamb who was slain. And that lamb gives us life. It's my prayer that we would receive him into our hearts and gift him to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you chose us, God, when we didn't deserve to be chosen. That you extended your arm to us, Lord, when we, in many cases, maybe didn't even want you, Lord. And, and we're grateful that you hear us right now, Lord. No matter where we are, no matter what we've experienced, God, you come alongside of us. You find a place in our pain. You find a place in what, in what we're feeling, God. And, Lord, we just ask that where we need healing, Lord, that you would heal. Where we're struggling, God, that you would reframe our minds, reframe our hearts, Lord, to the frequency of your voice. And, Lord, if there's an area in our lives where we're struggling, where we feel animosity, where we feel frustration, where we feel anger towards a group of people or anger towards somebody in our family or, or, even, or even in the church. God, I ask that you would heal that, Lord, and that you would call us into who you truly are, the message of a God who is setting up a kingdom that is greater than this world. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we can't wait to see you soon. We ask this in Jesus' name.